The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On this show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Kim Northwood is a long-term investor, entrepreneur, and author of Work Less, Make More, The Millennial's Guide to Financial Freedom. He's also a return guest on the show, having appeared on a recent episode to explore the different ways for saving for a deposit. In this episode, Kim is going to dive deeper into some of the more complex ways of saving money for your deposit by exploring the world of investing. He'll share the different kinds of investments you might want to consider and unpack the pros and cons of each. Plus, Kim will explain how the time frame that you want to buy within may help dictate which strategy is best for you. Let's jump in. Kim, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. It's fantastic to be here. And since it's your second appearance on the show, I want to start out by asking a fun question before we dive into today's topic. If you could live anywhere else in the world other than Australia, where would you live and why? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. As we were just discussing a little bit before, I love skiing. And so there's a place in the world which combines this like amazing combination of snow and food and just like quality of living. And it's Japan. I mean, up in the north of Japan, Hokkaido area, they've just got like some of the world's best skiing. And then you combine that with like onsen after skiing and you've got some of the best food in the world. The people are super friendly. I mean, I just think they've got it. They've just got it made. And you know what? And then the snow melts. And in summer, all they do is play golf. I've never been to Japan, but I've got a lot of friends that have been. And anyone that has gone has always come back raving about it. Even if they're a bit unsure to begin with, they've come back and they said, wow, like, like we're definitely going back. So, And the skiing is meant to be phenomenal as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's awesome. But i tell you what, the secret's out for Aussies. Like there's Australians all over. Yeah. All over. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I've heard, I've heard. People know. They're onto a good thing. Today, we're going to be breaking down some of the more complex ideas people might want to explore when they're saving for a deposit. And we're going to focus particularly on investing. Now, before we get started, investing might be uncharted territory for a lot of our listeners. So what do people need to consider before they get into investing? Yeah, look, there's a whole number of things that people need to consider. But I I guess there's some really basic principles that people kind of need to get their head around before they jump into the world of investing and committing their own money. And most basic of, of these is really the concept of risk and reward. So you know, it basically just means that like the higher the risk or the higher the chance of losing your money, the, generally speaking, the higher the chance of a greater return on your money. And conversely, if there's a low level of risk, then there's typically a low level of reward. That kind of makes sense, of course, because if there was if it was low risk but high return, then everyone would just go into that thing. So it's a kind of a natural mechanism that sort of stratifies people's investments. But people really, really have to kind of grasp that as a basic concept. And then once you've got that, you can start to work out where you want to put your own investments. And there is risk to investing, but I think it's also important to note that there are risks to not investing. 
So you kind of need to wrap your head around this this concept as well, which is while there are risks that you can put your money in and it, and it might go down, the risks of not investing include things such as inflation risk. So that's where if you just have cash in the bank, there's a risk that inflation erodes the buying power of your money. And then there's a risk asset prices go up higher and more quickly than the rate you can save. So that's kind of another risk to not investing. The third thing I think people need to really think about before they start investing is their own time frame. When do they need access to this money? Typically speaking, if you need access to the money within a sort of a shorter time frame, the level of risk you can take on is probably going to be a bit lower because things might go down and you won't have time to ride out the ups and the downs. Whereas if you've got a longer time frame, typically speaking, you can take a little bit more risk and you can be a bit more aggressive with your investing because you've got time for things to go up and you've got time for things to sort of go back down. And you're betting that like over the long term, things will have gone up, but you're not as worried about those short-term fluctuations. I think they're kind of really the basic things. And using those concepts, people can then put together their own risk profile and work out their own goals. So how much risk are you willing to take? And what actually is your goal? And when do you need this money? So a lot of these strategies, as as you're highlighting, can depend on how soon you're planning to buy. So can you explain what would be different for somebody looking to buy soon versus somebody who's looking to buy in, say, five years? If you're looking to buy soon, you probably don't want to be putting your money into really high-risk things that may drop within a year and then go back up in five years because it's no use to you. Then you need the money within a year. So if you're really looking to buy within a short time frame, then your mix of investments is probably going to be a little bit more cautious than someone who's looking to buy in, say, five, six, seven years where your mix of investments might be a little bit more aggressive and you can, you know, you've got time to ride out the ups and the downs. So that's really the key thing. And once you understand that, you can work out kind of which investment products you should be putting your money into. We're using the term investment, obviously, pretty broadly here. And what we want to try and do today is go through some options that one might want to consider in terms of making that investment to increase their deposit potentially or their contribution to a purchase of a first home. We'll start with the least risky and probably the lowest return and build up to the highest risk and highest reward options, as you've mentioned, those combinations. So I guess in your opinion, what would be the lowest and what would be something that's maybe in the middle of the road and what would be, I guess, the highest risk? Let's kind of go through it. Just as a, an upfront point, people, I think when they think of investing, some people think only of the stock market, but you actually have to think of it a bit more broadly. There's several asset classes and they all count as investments. There's cash, that can be an investment of itself. There's what's called fixed interest product and we can get to those. There's stocks and shares and things like that. And then there's property, of course, is an investment, an asset class. There's the asset class of commodities as well, which um, tends to be a little bit more complex. So, you know, I think it's important just to make that point up front that there are several types of asset classes when it comes to investing and they have their own risk and reward and pros and cons. But to go back to your your question, that if you look at it and you, you come in and you say, like, what's kind of on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to risk? Well, certainly cash in the bank, right? Like cash is sitting there, it's in the bank and, and you generally have access to it whenever you need. Now, you can still make that an investment if you look at, for example, high interest savings accounts. That's an investment because it's going to return some money to that cash that's sitting in the bank. At the moment, just having a look online, kind of there are products out there returning around 5.5% on the high interest savings side. So that's definitely better than what it's been 
in the past when interest rates were much lower. But of course, it's still probably on the modest end, considering that the inflation rate in Australia is the latest data I looked up was 6% to the end of June and actually dropping just a little bit. But it's kind of keeping you up with inflation at the very least. You know, it's relatively secure. And in fact, in Australia, deposits at authorised deposit-taking institutions, most banks and credit unions, you'd have to look it up to be 100% sure that that particular place is protected. But typically, they're protected up to $250,000. And they're protected by who? It's, it's a government protection, isn't it? It's a government protection, exactly, yeah. It's actually a hangover from the GFC. So we didn't place a, a protection for people's deposits so that people didn't, so that there wasn't a run and everyone didn't just pull their money out. And it's ended up sort of staying in place. So it means that deposits in these places are, are relatively secure and protected by the government. You can get the money whenever you need it. But on the flip side, you know, with these high interest savings accounts, there's typically a lot of conditions. Like you have to put in a certain amount every month. The balance might have to increase every month. You might not be able to withdraw more than you put in. You might have to make a certain number of transactions on the account. And if you do any of these things, or if you don't do any of these things, then you don't get the interest rate on the account. So it's, you know, the, the people have got to be aware of these conditions on, on the cash as well. So it's certainly an option, but it's definitely at the kind of the lower end. And those, those general rules I find are that they're monthly, aren't they? So like you've got to transfer a certain amount of funds into the account monthly. And, and then if you don't do it, then you, there's a lower rate of interest that they'll pay as opposed to the, you know, the high advertised one that you would see when you're searching online. Exactly. And what people got to under, have to understand is that these accounts are they're designed so that people start banking with these banks. That's what they want. So there's a bit of a reward there, but they want you to, have to do your everyday transaction with them and bring you into their kind of ecosystem of products. Yeah, but I can t- totally see how it is low risk and low reward. And I think you'd mentioned five and a half percent there is the benchmark and or as one of the higher returns. And as we go through these different options, perhaps using the percentage of return as a bit of a reference as to the higher the risk, probably the higher the reward in terms of a return as a percentage. So and the next one I think a lot of people would think of is probably something like a term deposit. And what are they like and how do they work? Yeah, exactly. So this sits into that kind of second category of asset that I mentioned before. This is fixed interest. So what it means is basically you give across a stack of money to the bank and in return, they give you a fixed rate of interest in terms of payment. So typically with a term deposit, you need a higher amount of money. So you can't just put in you know, $100. It's usually in the order of like 5000 could be a bit more. And what it does is it basically locks up your money for a certain period of time. And then at the end of that, they give you your money back and they give you the interest and it's on top of that. So it's almost like a set and forget investment. You put it aside with the bank and then they give you a fixed rate of interest back on that. There's a couple of downsides, of course. Probing is it's secure and it's stable. The downside being that you don't have access to the money during the life of the term deposit. If you need the money, there's usually like a break fee and it can be quite expensive. And the money's locked away, so you can't use it if you need it. You get locked in at a fixed rate of interest. So if interest rates are going up, for example, you're still kind of locked into that rate. And of course, when you get the interest, you have to pay tax on the interest because it's an earning as well. So that's something else that people have to consider as well. And similarly to a deposit, and something I hear a little bit about are bonds and government bonds. Do they fall in the same category as term deposits or are they something a little bit different? And can you tell us a little bit about bonds and how they actually work? Yeah, yeah. They fall in, in the same category as term deposits. They are a fixed interest product. There are kind of typically two types. There's the government bonds, which you've mentioned, and then there's corporate bonds. And what they are is basically 
just as with the bank, they're a way for the government and corporations to raise money from investors. So they they offer it to the market and people buy it and then the government or the corporation pays a fixed rate of interest back to the bond holder until the bond matures. So it's exactly the same as conceptually as a term deposit. Now, when you come into bonds, you'll see corporate bonds, they're typically not available to kind of individual investors. Usually they're big amounts of money. So therefore the kind of they're sort of big retail institutional investors. They might be, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar minimum, for example. So they're kind of less accessible to individuals. And especially to first home buyers. First home buyers have no chance for yeah. this stuff. So. Yeah, because yeah. if you've got five hundred thousand yeah. dollars <laughs> you're not worried about the deposit saving. That's for you're sure. not worried about the deposit <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Whereas government bonds, the treasury bonds, these are bought and sold on the ASX, on the stock market, just as you can buy and sell shares. And they offer a fixed rate of interest. They might be paid semi-annually or annually. And in effect, they're the same as the term deposit in paying that fixed rate of interest. I guess the slight difference is the price can fluctuate a little bit on the ASX as people consider the bond more or less desirable. But the flip side of that, of course, is that you can sell whenever you need the money. So it's kind of, you've got more liquidity. Would I be right to assume that that a bond might be slightly riskier than a term deposit? Because with a term deposit, you'll deposit the funds into the lending institution and it'll be that amount that you could potentially pull out at the end of that term deposit and then collect the interest. But with a bond, because it's a little bit more like a share, if it does drop for whatever reason and you want to withdraw your funds at that point, it could be less than what you would initially put in? That's right, yeah. Like So the price can fluctuate for the bond. So in that sense, there is a little bit more risk there. In some senses, like they're probably a little bit more complex to get your head around as to what they do and you know who's involved compared to a term deposit where you can kind of get the full outline. You can go speak to your bank and they'll tell you exactly what the product is. A term deposit is probably a little bit more accessible for kind of those early stage investors. So would that also mean that would the rate of return on your investment be slightly higher because that risk is slightly higher as well? really depends on the bond. I mean, you have to remember, while there is that kind of riskiness with the price, there's also that benefit that you can sell it at any point in time. And so that's going to reduce the kind of overall risk of the asset. People really have to do comparisons. The best term deposits out there at the moment are probably a little higher than the best government bonds. And that kind of does reflect the way that with the term deposit, you know, your money's locked up for that long period of as opposed to the ones which can be bought and sold. All right. That's a good understanding of those entry-level, more safe options. Let's go a little bit more into the intermediate, I guess, options and a little bit more complexity as well. And maybe what, when we say investing, what people generally feel is shares. And what would you say to our listeners that don't know anything about shares or are, you know, maybe considering shares as an option? What are they? How do they work? And what are the pros and cons of them? So at its most basic, when you buy a share, you're basically buying a part of that company. And so you become a part owner of the company. What that means is if the company does well, you kind of share in that rise in fortune for the company. So if the price of the share goes up, then you participate in that. And if the company is making a profit and is releasing dividends, then you get a share of those dividends. It also means that you get voting rights as a shareholder. And you can do that as a very small shareholder. Now, your vote might get outvoted quite significantly, but you're still a shareholder. You're entitled to go to the annual general meetings. You're a part owner of, of the company. And 
you can buy and sell on the ASX. They're the ones that are publicly listed. But of course, like if you start your own company, then you'll get shares in your own company and that's going to be a private company and it's not traded on the ASX in the same way. So yeah, look, that, that's kind of the shares at their, at their most basically. I guess that the pro is obviously that if you're able to pick a share that does well, then you will obviously reap some rewards. But, and I think what happens more often than not, especially to the untrained, they might not pick the best share. And then I guess the downside of it is that they can, people can potentially lose a lot of money. So, I mean, I guess understanding how risky could be, and and there is that high risk and reward, would you suggest to someone that's interested in, in looking at this as a strategy, like what kind of professional do they need to speak to and who would they need to be getting more information about? There's lots of information out there and, and you can certainly go see a financial advisor and they'll give you a, a full proper rundown and that's certainly advisable um, if you're starting to get into these sorts of riskier areas and in general, actually, I would say. I mean, and financial advice is very good just for your specific circumstances to understand what you're trying to achieve. That's one thing. I mean, with shares, other investors do this for a living day in, day out. And they read you know, financial statements, profit or loss balance sheets cash flow statements. I mean, they know this stuff back to front. So to get to that sort of level where you're confidently picking winners, it's incredibly hard. And that's why you have fund managers to do it for you. Yeah. And that leads into, in other words, what managed funds and what they are, because I guess, does that help mitigate the risk by any way or or how a managed fund works? There's a couple of really great things out there now, which can help combine investments into kind of a single investment, single fund. And for people who are kind of wondering how they can get involved in the share market without, you know, having to pick the winners and the losers, they, they could have a look at what's called an exchange traded fund. And to think about it, like in the abstract, it's basically like there's a fund manager who owns a whole bunch of shares and then you buy a unit of that and they hold it, the underlying shares kind of on trust for you. So when you buy one unit, you actually get a piece of lots of the pie, you get access to many, many companies. So for example, there are exchange traded funds which seek to kind of track the performance of the top 200 companies in, in Australia. So if you buy a unit of it, then you kind of get access to the performance of that of those 200 companies. And it does, to some extent, take out the decision making of like, do I go with that company or that company? You're kind of just saying, I'm going to buy the top 200 companies in Australia, for example or the top 300, whatever the case may be. And then you kind of rise and fall with the share market as a whole. And I imagine that they're doing a lot of the due diligence when it comes to assessing what shares they're putting in that portfolio. So that takes a little bit of the responsibility, I mean, to some extent, of you having to go through the P&Ls and all the business statements and documents. Would that be a right, right assumption there? Yeah, so like if people get into these exchange-traded funds, and, and a lot of them are passive, which means that all they're trying to do is match the performance of the stock market as a whole. They just want to. So they're not trying to do better than the market. They're just trying to own assets that track what happens in, in the stock market. They're happy with the average almost. Like it's like they're not looking for an outlier. Yep. They're just looking for the average. They're just looking for the average to keep up with things. And in that sense, ETFs can be a very accessible way to start investing. Because you're kind of saying to yourself, well, I'm just wanting to track the performance of the stock market as a whole. I'm happy to try and beat things at the moment, maybe down the track when I kind of understand it a bit more, get a bit more into it. 
but for the moment I'll just kind of track it. Okay. Well, a simple way to put it from what I understand, and, I, and I've got to admit, I'm, I'm very far from an expert in this particular area. So probably like a lot of the listeners trying to work out it in my mind, but it's like these ETFs or these exchange traded funds. It's like just buying a part of the share market as a whole kind of thing. So it's like, I want to invest in shares. I'm actually going to go and buy the share market kind of thing, you know? So it's that type of, as opposed to picking a particular company, I just want to go and invest in shares. And this is the best all rounder for me to basically, you know, to get into where I am hedging my bets to some extent, because I'm not picking one company that's going to go up or down. I'm picking multiple as part of a grouping. And then we're relying on the average of the performance of these companies. And we can split that into different categories. So we've got, you said the top 200 in the ASX. Yeah. So once you start looking into the types of ETFs that are available, there are a lot of types available. So there are ETFs that track the performance of the top 200 companies on the ASX. There's some that track the performance of the top 300 companies on the ASX. There's some that track the overall performance of high dividend companies. So they just want to kind of match dividend return. There's ETFs that track overseas companies. So you can get some that kind of track the performance of the 100 100 largest companies in the world, for example, or you might think that the US stock market is going to do well. So you can get some that track the biggest companies on the US stock exchange or European or Asian. So there are kind of a lot of different sort of niche products. There are niche ones now that track the performance of specific sectors, for example, so if you think a particular sector is going to do well, then you can start investing in that in an ETF that tracks that sector as a whole, as opposed to kind of just picking one company within that sector. And this has happened to me, by the way, like this happened earlier on in my investing career, but you can get caught up in the idea that like you pick the right industry and therefore that every company in that industry is going to do well, but it's absolutely not the case. Like you can pick a winning industry. But the company you pick might have bad management, they might have debt issues, they might have terrible staff, a whole bunch of reasons why they might do not as well, even if you happen to pick like what is a winning industry. Yeah. I mean, I've got industries in my head that I know that same, you know, friends and colleagues have, have done well in, but I'm not going to mention them because this is definitely not a <laughs> podcast where we, we're doing any type of advice or direction or anything like that with shares. It's just more to explain what these particular different systems of investment may be. But yeah, so that's ETFs and I can totally see how they can play a part in somebody, especially somebody who's probably a first home buyer that's looking to start into it. It's probably not a bad area for them to investigate and get some more information on to see. It seems to be a little bit less risky than trying to pick a winner of a company and hedging your bets a little bit more potentially. Yeah, definitely worth. And, and let me just make one, one final point on the ETFs there. Um, you get to participate in the price rise as a whole, if it goes up, the ASX, but you also get access to dividends from all of those companies as well. So if you're investing in the top 200 companies, every time all of them pay out a dividend, you also get a share of that. And that, for the Australian context, is really quite good because often those dividends are what they call franked, which basically means the company's paid a bit of tax on it already. And then therefore that flows through to you as well. So there's kind of these tax advantages to frank dividends as well. Okay. So that's a, a concept there that we'd probably need to explore as well, the franking of dividends and how that works. But it's just, a, I guess, a, a bit of a tax benefit potentially that one would want to explore. So getting into maybe some slightly higher risk, high reward territory, and I did mention it before, but I might have been a little bit incorrect in the way I, I, I mentioned it, managed funds. Now, these are different to ETFs. Is that correct? They are. Um, the overall idea is the same. It's still a fund. It's a pooled investment. 
So lots of people put their money together into a single fund that invests in lots of things underlying an investment. The sort of the main differences with an ETF that often they're actively managed, so therefore managed funds, which means that the fees are going to be typically a little bit higher. And what that means is, you know, they, they're basically trying to beat the market if they're actively managed. They're saying, pay us a little bit extra in fees and in return, we're going to try and do better for you. So that's kind of where you get that risk reward ratio coming back. And then, you know, the other major difference is that the managed funds usually are not traded on the ASX. So you don't buy and sell on the ASX. You kind of invest directly with the fund manager who then put all the money together and invests in things on your behalf. And by the way, I should say almost all of us have a managed fund already working for us. And that's our super. It's our super fund. So it's compulsory. You've got money coming out of your pay all the time to go into these funds and they're taking your money and investing on your behalf in property and bonds and stocks and commodities and infrastructure, etc. And it's all done on your behalf. So most of us actually already have a managed fund working for us. We're all already investors without realising it. <laughs> yeah. I'll pick up on that point because I think that's great. And, and people that are listening to this and are becoming aware of it or something's just registered now because of that thought, I would probably challenge you guys to find out who your super fund is and start to become inquisitive as to how they're investing your money. Because I, I know, and I learned this myself, is and I'm part of an industry super fund, you can actually log in and you can actually see how they're investing your money and you can have a, have a bit of a say. So, And it's not necessarily very finite in terms of, or, or, you know, you can't get very micro in terms of what they're investing in, but I think there are broader categories that you can select to have your your money allocated into or your super fund money allocated into. And, and they've got information about that through their websites and you can see what the average returns have been in certain categories. And if there's one that's more less risky than another, you might say, well, I want you to invest 100% of my funds into this type of share class, or it might be another type of class. So would you also recommend that or any thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think it's almost insane in some ways how like we have all this money being taken out of our pay every fortnight, monthly, whatever the case may be, and it's invested on our behalf. And a lot of people don't know what's happening to it. I mean, it's your money, you know, our money. And I guess it's probably an age-related thing. Like, I mean, depending on, on, on the age of the individual, I mean, for first home buyers, it's probably not something they're thinking about this super. But And I know I was around sort of 2009 and 10 and, and, and working at that time, but there are a lot of people that went on to obviously had the, the global financial crisis. But anyone that was about to retire at that stage when the share market basically just bottomed out, a lot of their wealth that they had generated over the last 10 or 15 years had basically wiped out. So they were in a situation where they probably couldn't retire because they went away. Now, that's obviously something you probably can't forecast, but it's definitely part of that investment risk, I guess, that we're all already, maybe unknowingly, subject to. No, that's exactly right. We're, we're all subject. It's the law. Yeah, I think the super fund, I don't know what how much, I don't know how many trillions it's worth now, but I'm not sure if it's more than property, Australian property, or if it's second behind Australian property in terms of value of the um, Australian property market against the size of our, you know, superannuation market within Australia, but I know it's... Uh, Ooh, I think property overall is still more valuable supermarket i think i would have to yeah it's questionable right like i mean it's, you can't definitively say one or the other without researching it so so i and i remember hearing it recently where it's there or thereabouts um, i still think real estate is number one but in any case and that leads us into another option that i want to talk about which is relevant for anyone looking to get in, onto the property market which are real estate investment funds they're cropping up more and more now i feel um what is a real estate investment fund and how do they work and what are the pros and cons of them it's basically just like a fund so it's pooling money together to buy assets on your behalf. 
But in the case of real estate investment trusts, they're, they're just going to buy property, so property assets. And it invests in residential real estate, but they might also invest in commercial real estate. So, you know, these are the types of funds that invest in hospitals and shopping centers, warehouses and corner stores and things like that. So what it does is it allows you kind of to get access to the Australian property market without having to own and manage an entire property. So when you invest in one of these, you're basically getting kind of a piece of what's happening in the property market as a whole. Now, I mean, there's a couple of things to note there. I mean, but when people think of property market, they often think of residential property and they often actually think of Sydney and what's happening with the crazy Sydney property market. But the fact is like property across Australia as a whole is often, it often doesn't have that same insane kind of rise in, in prices and it can be quite stable. In fact, it can even go down. Just look at, for example, now, you know, commercial properties, office rental space in the city is is less less in demand because more people are working from home. So the returns for the property owner, the manager, the commercial property might be a little bit less. So real estate investment trusts, you know, you get access to property in Australia, but you might not get that kind of crazy sort of price rises that you see in Sydney. But still, it's a really good way if people want to get into the property market without actually owning and managing an entire property, then this is certainly a way to do that. And particularly if people think that certain commercial properties are going to do well as well, it's a far more accessible way for individual investors to get to get involved. Yeah, no, no, I can imagine. And I would assume because it's, it's the real estate, it's the Australian property, you know, real estate sector that you're investing in, it's probably there's a bit of stability there compared to, say, you know, investing in shares in a company or something like that. So there is that element of, you know, of stability there. Again, that's that back to that risk reward uh, scenario though, but it's very stable than, than the risk of, of a big reward or, or sorry, the, the amount of the reward might be not as high as some other investments categories that we've spoken about. Yeah, and then, I mean, a couple other points with the REITs is um, just as with a share or a company, you get dividend returns when they pay out. With the property, you get some rental returns whenever whenever that money comes in. So you kind of get access to that as well. And these REITs, they're bought and sold on the ASX. Just, you, know, you can buy them just like you can buy ETFs and shares, but they're bought and sold the same way. So, of course, you can get that fluctuation in the price of the unit as well. Then... There are, I mean, if people want to get into this space a bit more, there's um, those are the listed funds, so they're listed on the ASX, and there's unlisted funds. Again, kind of the idea that a fund manager will take money from a lot of people and pool it and buy real estate property across the country. And there's, you know, there's a lot of good research out there. Core Property Research does does some pretty good research on property funds if people are looking to get into it a little bit further. Yeah. But definitely something that's worth exploring if people are looking at, at ways of boosting their, their deposit by some savvy and diligent investing. Well, thank you for explaining all of those different categories. And and from what you've mentioned and a bit of a summary, the bonds that we'd mentioned, the shares, the ETFs, and the, these real estate investment funds options, they're accessible via the ASX if people wanted to look into that. And as well as then obviously the managed private companies that are looking after that as well. Yeah, yeah. So shares on the ASX, you can buy shares, particular companies, you can buy ETFs, you'll be able to buy government bonds and the RE, REITs. Yes, they are available to buy and sell on the ASX. 
Yep. All right. And this is just information for people just to digest. And if they're interested in pursuing anything further, obviously you need to speak to the relevant professional. And I'd probably say to be a financial advisor of some type that can guide you through and explain you through the best way to perhaps structure this and plan this out. Final two questions to finish up, if it's okay. The first one is, in your opinion, what should first home buyers prioritise in the process of saving their deposit? I think it's about keeping up with price rises. So in the past, it was, you could just put money aside diligently and save and build up that money for a deposit. And I think the market has changed a bit now and house prices keep on going up. So I think it's important to look at strategies to keep up beyond just saving. That might be, you know, high interest savings accounts. It could be bonds, deposits, it could be ETFs, it could be shares, it could be REITs. But I think it's important that people look at these options and understand them because the rate at which you can save may not be enough to keep up with the price rises and what you need to get deposit. Yeah. And I think to top off on that, I mean, yeah, we traditionally we always think just save, 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 put X amount of your money away and just save, save, save to get that house. But it was always a challenge to do that. But now with the other economic factors that are affecting us today with cost of living and things, it's hard to play catch. You can't just rely on saving if you're looking to build up your deposit. You have to look at these probably these more, which is why we're talking about it, these more complicated methods of investment so that you can save a little bit quicker or at the same rate as everything else going up, as, as you mentioned a few times. The second one is, what's one thing you wish you knew before you started investing? So if you go back to when you started knowing what you know now, you know what would that be and what would you act on then knowing what you know now? It's basically just what I've, said like when I was younger and starting out before I'd started sort of my investing journey, I was, you know, quite diligent with savings, putting money aside, making sure that I kept more than I spent. But what I didn't understand was the difference between saving and investing. And that's what I wish I'd learned kind of earlier. Savings is putting money aside, but investing is putting that money to work for you. So there's a difference there and quite a critical difference. And I think if I'd known that earlier, then I certainly would have been investing earlier. And hopefully this podcast for somebody listening, they can recognize that particular thought. And now with the content throughout this particular podcast as well, they can start to understand what are these investments? What do they look like? And hopefully it just sort of lights the fire that might get them to explore these options and assist them in that journey. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us today on the show. Where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more? My website, kimnorthwood.com. And that's where they can buy a copy of my book, work less, make more the millennials guide to financial freedom. And then secondly, just developing at the moment, a new course on investing with founder of ladies finance club, Molly Benjamin, and that course will be available shortly. So people can sign up and pre-register for the course. So we'll start with a kind of entry level beginners guide to investing. And then, and then it kind of gets progressively more more complex. So yeah, just open for pre-registrations at the moment. Um, if people go onto my, my website, kimnorthwood.com, there'll be a tab investing course and they can um, can follow that to sign up. That's super exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, like I said, they'll be in the show notes for sure. So anyone that wants to check that out, uh, look in the show notes and the links will be there for that. Thank you so much again for joining me on the show, Kim. It's been great and fantastic topic today. Really insightful. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great. No, thank you again for having me. It's uh, enjoyable as always. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by LendStreet. LendStreet is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. 
We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lendstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Massa, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.